really, you know, and immediately recognizing that trauma was a huge factor in people's life experiences, what was going on for them. And so recognizing that, you know, kind of no matter where I turned or where I looked, that this, I, this was coming up at the forefront. And I think, you know, as human beings walking through our lives in general, the experiences of trauma happen to us all the time. And be they traumatic experiences that are, you know, ones that cause post-traumatic stress disorder or ones that stay with us and build in different ways. And, you know, they're kind of the the stressful life experiences that will accumulate to form something that feels traumatic. Welcome to Redefining Reality, where we live at the intersection of wellness, business, and the birth of a global tribe. So relax your body-mind, open your heart, and recognize that we are the ones we've been waiting for. Okay, beautiful, powerful people, it is Brian Hardy coming to you with another episode of Redefining Reality, and I hope you're doing well, you're making it through these ever-changing, chaotic, harmonious, challenging, uplifting times. Life is a paradox, get used to it, and learn to ride the waves uh, with more grace and ease and surrender. That's that's me talking to myself, essentially. That is me talking to myself. If that resonates with you, I'm I'm glad. And if it doesn't, that's fantastic too. But um, yeah, in my own journey and in the journey of a lot of the people that I talk to and work with, it's been a crazy time. So it's been a little minute since I've uploaded on here. I hope you guys have been patient and enjoying your January up in Toronto. We have just gotten our first massive snowfall. So it really feels like winter is here. And as I record this, I can feel the cool, crisp air coming in through the window, and I love it. Absolutely love it. And uh, today's episode is going to be a great one, talking about some really cool developments in the world of mental health and wellness uh, with a new friend that I made, who I'll introduce you to shortly. But first, a couple things coming up. So... Next Monday, the new moon, February 4th, myself, my partner Katya, and my business partner Kathleen are going to be hosting a meditation, breathing, clearing, gentle moving workshop. Uh, It's going to be an hour and a half long at Kathleen's space, beautiful space in Yorkville at 158 DuPont, room uh, floor four. And we're going to just be coming together, sharing some breathing, some Wim Hof breathing, some yogic breathing, really centering ourselves, really charging up the body and the mind, uh, and then doing some meditation to clear that which is no longer serving, that which needs to be let go, and then planting intentions with the new moon. So if you're into that kind of thing, want to join us, please do. The event link you can find both in the show notes of this episode at brianhardy.ca forward slash remedy, R-E-M-E-D-Y, or you can find it linked through my Instagram page, brianhardy7. So click the link on my Instagram page 
and uh, you'll find our Monday meditation experience. So I hope to see you there if you're in Toronto. And two other quick things I want to mention. One is all about turning your brain on, turning your focus on, turning your memory on, your flow on, and that is Qualia. Qualia is a fantastic product that the folks at Neurohacker Collective have formulated, and it's some of the highest level nutritional brain support I've ever come across. And uh, you can check out both of their formulas. They have Qualia Mind, Qualia Focus. Both are fantastic and can be fit into any budget. And um, if you go to their website and you want to try this stuff, not only do they give you a massive discount on your first order if you do the subscription, but you can cancel at any point. Um, but you'll also save 15% on top of that discount if you use the coupon code BHARDY. B-H-A-R-D-Y, 15% off anything that you order through the folks at Neurohacker Collective for their Qualia Mind or Qualia Focus. And the Qualia Mind does come in caffeine-free. So if you're thinking, Brian, I want to try that, but I don't like to do caffeine, I don't like the stimulation, then try the caffeine-free and see how that works for you. And they got a fantastic uh, satisfaction policy. So if you're not satisfied, you can get your money back. Minus the cost of shipping, I believe. And then the other, if I can speak, the other opportunity offering I want to bring to your attention is from the folks at Human Charger. Now, I had Yari of Human Charger on the podcast a few episodes back. If you pop back in time, you will see that one. And uh, it was a really good episode. And we talked about light and the importance of light, the importance of our circadian rhythms for us to feel good and focused and energized and for our bodies and minds to work the way they're designed to work. And in the winter, in a northern climate, that becomes a challenge, right? There hasn't been a lot of daylight, at least where I'm at in Toronto, right? So it's still pretty dark. It's getting dark. The days are lengthening. By all means, they are lengthening, but we're spending less time outside in general, and we're not getting those signals. And so the human charger is sunlight in your pocket, and I love this thing. I put it on first thing in the morning or in the afternoon if I need a boost, and uh, I'll meditate with it, and I can really feel how the warm, bright white light is just waking up my senses and illuminating my brain is how it feels at least. Um, And we all know that light exposure and proper circadian rhythm are so, so, so important when you're looking at mental health, you're looking at energy, you're looking at metabolism. All these things are tied together. So if you've been feeling a little bit down this winter, if you've been really struggling with the gray days and the cold, then not only are you know both of these products right up your alley, Qualia and Human Charger, but uh, the Human Charger is not something you take. It's something you use. It's a tool. It's a light device. And it's very easy to travel with, and it's fantastic for hacking jet lag. So if you travel a lot, if you're feeling run down, then uh, take a look at these products over at brianhardy.ca forward slash remedy, um, or just visit the websites of those different companies, and uh, Human Charger will save you 20% with code HARDY20. All one word, H-A-R-D-Y-2-0. HARDY20, save 20% off of your Human Charger, and I hope you enjoy it if you try it. One more announcement. This week, actually, tomorrow, as I record this, Wednesday, January 30th, 
I'll be starting my first day at a new clinic here in Toronto, a beautiful clinic that I love, that I've come to enjoy, that I've been a patient at for the last mm, seven months, I believe, uh, with Dr. Scott Levine, who I'll have to have on here at some point. We're doing a whole lot of fun stuff together. But uh, if you're in Toronto or the GTA and you want to come and see me in person, you want to have a face-to-face consultation, you want me to support you on your health journey, you want to learn what I'm up to, you want to plug into our blossoming biohacking studio at this clinic, then come on by. Reach out, get connected. It's Vita Brain and Body is the clinic name. Uh, If you search Vita V-I-T-A, Brain and Body. Anywhere online, you will find it. It's down at uh, Young and St. Clair in Toronto. If you're in Toronto, you know what that means. If you're not, you can disregard this. But uh, yeah, I'm going to have office hours there from 10 to 6 on Wednesdays. So come and see me. Get yourself feeling amazing. Get yourself feeling like your best self, recovering from life, recovering from injuries, optimizing digestion, focus, All of those good things. That is why I'm here and that is what I am offering to the community and so excited to unroll there. So if you're in the area, come and see me. And now to the episode. So my guest today is Dr. Ann Wagner. I'm not going to go too, too, too into depth about her backstory because we do that in the episode. But uh, Ann is a fantastic, innovative, visionary mm, clinician, I would say. And she runs the Remedy Center which just had its official grand opening party, which was a fantastic event. I was blessed to attend. And it's over on uh, Bloor and Christie here in Toronto, 704 Bloor, I believe, Bloor West. And it is not just a clinic. That is, this is a mental health innovation community. And they're doing some really cool things, two of which I'll briefly mention. So one is providing care, reduced price care for frontline practitioners, social workers, uh, counselors. I'm not, I'm not sure the, exactly the scope of the practitioner. Like I'm wondering, do I qualify as a health coach? I'm curious, but uh, they are doing that and they are doing um, affordable group programming for artists. So two populations that definitely need support, and definitely need uh, awesome mental health protocols and paradigms and communities. So they are offering that. And uh, in this episode, we talk about her experience as a clinician, her experience with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and MAPS and the good work that is continuing to happen that is very exciting, very groundbreaking. And we talk about um, you know, her experience with holotropic breathwork and the Zendo project, which is something that MAPS does at festivals. We talk about some of her greatest teachers. Um, how the how the really the, the the paradigm has shifted in mental health, and how she is focusing on trauma and PTSD in specific at her clinic. And so, if you're in Toronto, if you are at all interested in mental health, in using entheogens or entactogens to support mental health, as is being done with maps, then this is the episode for you. And, uh, and if you're struggling with your own mental health, then this is probably also the episode for you to have some relief, have some compassion, and have some resources that can help point you towards a better direction that feels good and nourishing and aligned with who you are. So that's that. I hope you guys are doing so well. Please come and see me in person. I love meeting up with y'all in person. I love hearing from y'all. If the podcast is making an impact, I love to get those messages or to see those shares on social media 
whether it be on Instagram, on a story. If you're listening, you know, tag me on your story or on Facebook, resharing my post. It all is appreciated and it all does wonders to help spread this message and this movement of optimal health and wellness and a birth of a global tribe that is taking over this planet for the better. So with that, I will leave you to enjoy this episode. Be well, be love, shine on, and I'll catch you next time. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back. Today, I'm sitting here with Dr. Ann Wagner of the Remedy Center, which is a very cool center that I hope to explore more about in this conversation. Um, Anne is a clinical psychologist and is currently uh, specializing in um, or undertaking research in MDMA and PTSD and how these things can work together. Um, and so we're going to dive into all that and more, I'm sure. Uh, but first of all, thank you, Anne, for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brent. And uh, for a bit of context, I met Anne at uh, an event in, I guess, November, uh, the, the Leaf Forward uh, sort of panel discussion uh, on the future of drugs or the future of, uh, mostly they're talking about cannabis, but it was very cool to see that they had you on there as well to talk mm -hmm. about something completely outside of the cannabis uh, realm, uh, which was your clinical experience uh, with MDMA and PTSD and all these things. Um, and so it's something that I've been aware of for a number of years and looking into and, and, uh, you know, the, the potential there seems to be utterly transformative for how we look at mental health and how we deal with, uh, mental health and disability caused by that. So, uh, mm -hmm. thank you for doing that work. And I'd like to start, um, you know, a little bit back in time and sort of understand, where you came from and what were the main uh, sort of defining moments that have brought you to doing this work, to starting the Remedy Center, um, and to carrying out this research. I'd love to hear some of that story. Sure. Yeah, it's been a, an interesting route, I think, and not, I, you know, if you'd asked me five years ago if I thought the Remedy would exist, I wouldn't have even thought that there was an idea like that out there. And so it's exciting to see it exist now. So, um, so I guess the journey started when um, I decided to go to grad school for psychology. So that was a decision I made uh, pretty early on, like when I was pretty, I was pretty young and I was deciding that what I wanted to pursue. And I thought that a grad degree in psychology was going to offer a lot of open doors. And that to me was really exciting. The idea that I could pursue lots of different research, I'd be able to be a clinician and work with folks, that it seemed like there was a lot of potential there. And uh, luckily, it felt like it's been the, a, the best decision I've made. I've for sure uh, agreed with that. And I think the my interest in working with trauma and PTSD started pretty early. So I had been, um, my grandfather was actually uh, an underminister for Veterans Affairs back when I was a kid. And so I'd been exposed through him to, you know, what it looks like when people are looking for care and especially for PTSD and when, especially at a time when there wasn't very much treatment and people were 
you know, believe that they had PTSD for life. And that to me was a challenge. And there was a, a whole generation of folks who had lived through the Second World War who were working with the experiences of trauma in a much bigger and uh, bigger way and infused into every aspect of their lives. Because it wasn't just folks who had experienced it themselves, it was their family members, their communities who were also feeling the impact. So having seen that, uh, you know, as the grandchild of someone who was very invested in, in making sure people were getting access to services, then that translated into, oh, I wonder, you know, what that would look like clinically. So that was the first thing that I remember pushed me into that realm. And then uh, I did a lot of work in my early grad school years with communities living with HIV. And that really, you know, immediately recognizing that trauma was a huge factor in people's life experiences, what was going on for them. And so recognizing that, you know, kind of no matter where I turned or where I looked, that this, I, this was coming up at the forefront. And I think, you know, as human beings walking through our lives in general, the experiences of trauma happen to us all the time. And be they traumatic experiences that are, you know, ones that cause post-traumatic stress disorder or ones that stay with us and build in different ways. And, you know, they're kind of the, the stressful life experiences that will accumulate to form something that feels traumatic. There's, you know, we're all exposed to that at various times. So that to me was compelling. And I think, I think too, trauma tends to be uh, seen as something overwhelming or something untouchable in a lot of ways. And a lot of the work I've done has been trying to encourage a viewpoint that trauma is actually very normative, that it's a, it's a very normal reaction to a uh, an abnormal thing that's happened, but that that abnormal thing happens to the vast majority of us. So I think the, the idea being that we, we can really take an approach to our lives and healing that is, I don't know, trauma-informed, I think is the best way to put it, but that also um, that's really driven a lot of my, my work and ideas going forward. So that's how I kind of ended up in the area of trauma, was that perspective. And so I graduated and I, um, I took a postdoc position um, at Ryerson University where I'd also done my grad work, but with Dr. Candace Monson doing um, PTSD treatment development research. So in, during that postdoc, so that was exciting. We, you know, we're, we focus a lot on couples work and uh, how we can do treatments that impact the whole family system and the whole community as well as the person with PTSD. And I think that that was really appealing to my sensibilities of, of going into the community um, angle. So uh, we started that work and then we got approached um, by folks from MAPS, so the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. So MAPS has been doing work uh, to make MDMA a legal medicine for the treatment of PTSD for over 30 years now. So they've been pushing this to the forefront since MDMA was scheduled into Schedule 1 in the U.S., and which therefore made it illegal to do any work with it or prescribe it as medicine. Mm -hmm. So MAPS has had this very long journey that you know we're now at this new wave of seeing uh, work and opportunity happening that you know, we're actually able to research these medicines. And I think a, a, a large part due to MAPS's huge efforts in order to make that happen. 
So they had approached uh, Candace and they'd approached uh, some of Candace's former colleagues at um, the Veterans Administration in the US about potentially collaborating. And the idea being that if we collaborated using a couples therapy because of the, you know, the purported mechanisms of MDMA and the empathy that it can create, uh, that a couples treatment might be a really good one to test out um, combining a psychotherapy with MDMA. So that's how we launched into the very first study we did, which was um, a pilot study looking at this treatment we do, which is cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy for PTSD with MDMA. And we finished that in the spring. So that's, uh, it's the first one and it's finished off. But that was my first foray of learning into anything within the intactogen psychedelic realm in terms of using these medicines as uh, tools for therapeutic gain and for growth and for exploration. So that's the that was the MDMA trajectory so far. And then one of one thing that happened along the way when I started doing this MDMA work was realizing that it actually shifted my perspective substantially in terms of what I wanted to do career wise and what I wanted to emphasize. And I found the work so compelling with MDMA that. I decided that I really wanted to make that my focus going forward of, of pursuing that and seeing how that could be a tool. Um, and I had the lucky experience and of early on when we were being introduced to doing this work of being invited to participate in a study uh, for therapists. So I got to have my own MDMA therapy session. And at that point I was completely agnostic. Like I had no, um, no attachment to the idea of using psychedelics and treatment. I had, you know, never had MDMA before. It was a whole new experience for me. And it was, you know, I, I think I've said it before and I'll definitely say it now that it was the most seminal therapeutic experience that I've ever had. And, you know, as a psychologist who's invested in my own growth and development, you know, that's for me saying quite a bit that that's, it was so important. So that idea that planted the seed and my imagination has been captured ever since because of it. And that's a really exciting feeling to have as a researcher, as a clinician. And I decided at a certain point that, you know, as a researcher, it's a challenging thing to, you know, figure out how you're going to do your work. Um, you know, and there tends to be one route that's often suggested uh, for those of us who've grown up in the academy is that you stay in the academy, you get an academic job and an academic institution, and that's how you get your research done. And something just wasn't sitting quite right with me about being homed in an institution for in that same way. So I started to look at other ways of combining research and practice and creating community around innovation, around um, the ability to do research outside of an institution, but still with all the rigor that one would you know, if you were fully housed in an institution. So that was the, that planted the seed for the idea of Remedy. And so Remedy is a mental health innovation community. And so we're both a practice and a home for research. And we're a home for innovation within mental health, meaning that we're, we are supportive uh, in both our actions, but also our dollars in terms of supporting the ideas of our members to improve the lives of the people that we're working with. And so the, idea being that we think that there's 
you know, so much room and we have so much training and skill and being able to develop ideas. And oftentimes that gets squelched when, you know, you leave school and you don't have an academic job. So this is a kind of an experiment in seeing what we can do and, you know, creating like-minded events with other um, mental health and wellness practitioners as well. So Remedy opened in September. We're brand new and uh, we are in the process of you know building a clinical practice which is our first step and then the very the first study that's going to be running out of remedy uh, will hopefully be in mid to late 2019 and it's going to be another pilot study using mdma so it's going to be doing a individual treatment for ptsd called cognitive processing therapy which is one of the frontline treatments uh, for ptsd it's pretty widely disseminated and we're really excited to have that be the um the launch of our innovation. Well, I mean, we're innovating now, but the innovation research piece that happened there. Very cool. Very cool. So many things to dig into. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to do my best to track. I'm, I'm taking notes and for everyone listening, um, you know, I'm taking notes as we go and any resources mentioned, links mentioned, any of that stuff you'll find over at the blog, which is just brianhardy.ca forward slash remedy. And that's where I'll include everything that we're talking about today. Um, and I'd love to get a bit of a historical understanding or context as to, you know, when your grandfather was doing this work, what kinds of treatments were available? What was the perspective on these challenges? Was it just lock people up into an insane asylum or shock them with electricity or like what were people attempting to use and, um, you know, how effective were their approaches? Right. So, you know, the, the times I best, well, I mean, I remember it all when he was working, doing this work was probably in the 80s, like when I was a little kid. And um, and he'd been involved in that work in the 70s as well and, and prior. So, I mean, he'd served in World War II. The interesting thing is that it wasn't really talked about as PTSD. Like, I don't remember conversation of PTSD particularly, but I remember strongly this idea, this push for services for veterans who were struggling. And um, there was, for example, in Ottawa, there was a hospital um, that was designated for veterans called the Pearly Rito, and that, you know, my grandfather was a massive supporter of that hospital. And so I think what it tended to be was when people were struggling, it was in a biomedical framework that, you know, like, okay, let's get them to a, like a hospital and a physician and, and what that looked like. Um, so I think there was a lot of emphasis on care and emphasis on helping people feel well, but there wasn't a lot of talk about mental health within it or that this could be the reason behind it. And I think, um, you know, there's many folks who were struggling with the, uh, the fallout of uh, war experiences that did not perceive them as being uh, related to PTSD or, or things like that. So it sometimes got lumped under just health in general. And so it was access to healthcare. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, I can imagine having heard stories anecdotally and read accounts of, you know, the vast numbers of veterans who just came back and just didn't ever talk about what they had been through. Mm -hmm. um, and this idea of epigenetic inheritance of trauma and like psycho-emotional uh, passing on of these things, mm -hmm. um, which is real interesting to consider. And which in my own experience with certain, um, you know, uh, visionary medicines, you, you, you can 
come into contact with some of these things and think, is that even mine? Like, where did this come from necessarily? Mm -hmm. People often get really confused about, you know, what is this whole thing? And uh, it's just fascinating how us as human beings can pick up and store memories in the body and in the various systems and pass them on and process them at a later date. It's just the whole thing's fascinating. Um, And I would love to hear um, more of your sort of first person perspective on that first trial, that first experience and, mm-hmm. and what that was like and what that sort of revealed to you that has ignited um, this, this passion to, to continue to work in this realm. Totally. Yeah. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about. So mm-hmm. the idea of doing that. Um, so doing that trial was a, <laughs> it was a fascinating experience because, you know, you, you never expect to walk into your, mentor's office and then get asked, so, and do you want to go to South Carolina and take MDMA? And you're like, did this just happen in my <laughs> so, um, But you're like, okay, all right. Um, so yeah, it was, it was so interesting. Cause I also, I mean, I really got the experience of being a participant too. Like I had to do all of the, you know, the, the medical testing ahead of time, all the blood tests, all the EKGs, like the um, questionnaires, everything. So like, I really, you know, you got the full, full picture of what it's like to be um, a participant. And uh, then the experience was one day I got um, an MDMA dose, another day I got a placebo dose. And so everyone's blinded. So you don't know, of course, which one you're getting which day. And of course, so since I had not had any experiences with MDMA before, I, I did not know what it would feel like other than what had been described to me um, when it would start. So I remember that day of, I was super anxious a, a, because I was like, I had no idea what this experience would be like or, you know, where I'd go within the experience and particularly because within a therapeutic context, it's so, I mean, so different than it would be in other ways out in the world. If you're, you know, in nature or at a festival or with friends or something, because the idea is you are, you're diving in and doing internal work and, who knows what's going to come up in that experience. So I, I think it's certainly given me a lot of empathy too, for folks who are coming in and doing this work who are very anxious. And I understand too, because also they were dealing with their PTSD. So, I mean, talk about putting multiple things that are scary together for people. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so that, that ha- the, you know, I arrived in South Carolina, met the team and that first day uh, when it, I was the first one up uh, to go and do the session and I got the dose and for the first hour I was convinced I had placebo. I was just like, you know, I was, um, I had the eye shades on headphones on listening to music, uh, you know, turning inwards does, you know, we use that expression of kind of turning inwards to see what experiences are coming up. And, you know, I just felt like I was in a fairly deep meditative state. Um, and I, but I did start to have, experiences that felt like home so like I would have these memories or images that felt home-like to me and you know they for me there's I have a cottage that I grew up with and so I kept being brought back to images of there and the music playing seemed to intersect with those images and memories but I was you know having a background in doing meditation I was like oh I'm probably in a fairly deep meditative state at the moment um but then it was so you're hooked up to a, a blood pressure machine and I had a, you know, a team around me. I had two therapists and then my two colleagues were in the room watching as well. 
And uh, they all saw my blood pressure spike before I knew that it had spiked. And so I think they all were tipped off potentially that um, this was going to be my MDMA session, but I had not a clue. And then um, I remember the music being switched. So one of my therapists, my, my two therapists were Annie and Michael Mithofer, who are like the, uh, the two folks who have run the vast majority of the MDMA assisted psychotherapy trials for PTSD. So I was very lucky to get them as my therapist. So um, Annie switched the music and it turned it to something more active. And I just remember having this thought of like, this is, I hate this music. I hate this music. And I was so weird because I really actually enjoy all music, like I, you know, odd tones and whatnot. And I just had this moment of being like, oh, this tone's just awful. And having then having the thought of, oh no, if this is what placebo is like, I do not want the active dose. And then realizing like, oh wait, hold on. <laughs> this must be the active <laughs> dose. And then as soon as I, you know, clicked into that, then everything, it, then it started and I really started to have a, a strong effect and um, dove into the experience. And I think for me, the really seminal therapeutic piece was well, it, it was interesting in a lot of ways. One was that I got to have a different relationship to emotion um, that was very useful. Like one that, you know, we often have, I, well, I describe as we have these different layers of emotion and there's ones that are secondary that often are the ones that we play with most. So, you know, that we're, you know, we're judging ourselves on top of, you know, what else, whatever else we're feeling, or we have other thoughts that are getting in the way. And it felt like that top layer just got put to the side. So I got to tap into how I really felt and how I really thought very quickly. Like there was no, even if that thing was ambivalent, like that I didn't have an answer, I was readily able to be like, I'm ambivalent about that. And so that was such a relief, like to just not have the questioning. It was just like, I had answers quickly and my line of thought was clear and my emotions were deep and I was able to uh, sit with all of those. And so that felt like a really um, important learning experience for me. And one that afterwards when I reflected on it, you know, realized that that was, would be very, very useful for folks with PTSD as well to have, you know, basically the PTSD be quiet for the duration of a session. So yeah, and it also allowed me the experience of learning that there can be this almost like ineffable piece that goes alongside uh, an experience that is, it, I've tried to describe in many different ways over time. It's been, you know, over four years since I had that experience, but I, I still can't quite explain it. And I think that that's okay, that I can't explain it, but that there is something powerful about that that changed my perspective on a lot. And that, I mean, it certainly changed really the course of my career and in a lot of ways, the course of my life too, um, by having this excitement and this, um, this opening of doors and thinking in a different way. So yeah, I think if there's anything that uh, some of these visionary medicines are going to teach us, and that's a pretty big lesson from them. And it was interesting to me that it, for me, it happened in a research trial using MDMA. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm curious if either for yourself or uh, if it's common with individuals who undergo this type of thing, um, 
is there like a like an intense vi visual aspect to it having the blindfold is it more mental emotional processing like what's the actual uh, physiological experience or what was it for you uh, in terms of are you having you know quote unquote hallucinations or visuals or any of those different phenomena yeah so with mdma it tends not to be very it's not visual and it is not um there's not a hallucinatory prop like property to it as much so but what people do is they do have the experience of strong hmm, trying to think how to put it or i'll talk from my first person experience because i think that's probably easier um like strong emotion and strong perspective on that feel like visuals so you're not actually hallucinating something but you are quote unquote seeing it in a different way and uh, so there's, you know, thought and emotion that go alongside of that. But the idea that you could have imagery that comes to mind, but you're not actually having the, um, the, the actual, you know, your eyes are not creating the visual effect in the same way that, for example, if you were, uh, you know, on a, a like a psilocybin or LSD or, you know, ayahuasca that you would actually have like visual hallucination. This is more of a internal processing vision type of experience. Well, and is that uh, what gives rise to the classification as an intactogen? Mm -hmm. I'd heard you use that word before, and I, I'd never heard that word. I, I've heard of entheogen, um, mm -hmm. psychedelic, and these various things, but intactogen, can you just break that down for us and sort of explain what that is? Yeah, it's a term that's been coined by um, Dr. Dave Nichols, who's a, um, a chemist, and he actually created all the MDMA for the studies that uh, we've been doing over the past 30 odd years. So he, um, the idea behind the term intactogen is it's the idea of to touch within. So um, this concept of actually more attunement to emotional experience, to thought, as opposed to uh, a psychedelic, which has the inherent quality of a, a different type of perception, which oftentimes involves hallucination or that experience that goes along with it. So that it is, it is classified quote unquote as a psychedelic MDMA is, but it's, it's not a classic psychedelic because it doesn't have the psychedelia component to it, um, but does create a chain, a non-ordinary state of consciousness and a, and a touching within, which is the intactogen piece. Historically also sometimes people use the word empathogen, which is, now we don't use quite as much, but that was the idea that it creates empathy, but there's, it doesn't necessarily, I think there's, that's the question of it doesn't create empathy. It just allows you to access empathy in a different way. So mm. um, hence moving towards intactogen as a term. Very cool. Very cool. I, I like that term. Mm -hmm. um, and in my handful of experiences that I think I've been blessed in many ways in my journey through various medicines and different things to, to not get taken off into just like a mainstream party aspect of things, which can be very potentially harmful, uh, right? If you're not in the right place with the right people and the right intention. Yeah. Um, but I can definitely uh, echo some of those things that with MDMA, it was just like profound okayness. Mm-hmm. Like I was okay, I was loved, I was with beautiful people and we were all together and just this intense bonding and mm -hmm. um, a depth, a depth of relating that uh, was free of any shame or uh, overthinking or um, 
embarrassment or any of that stuff, right? It just brought so much lightness and so much, um, you know, the word love can be tricky, but it felt like, like a loving, embracing sort of feeling mm-hmm. um, that even in that context of just small group of friends at a cottage was, was therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it really, uh, it really pains me when I hear people that are taking a lot of these things, right. And, and doing so in party atmospheres and, uh, you know, seemingly abusing uh, themselves and, and these substances, which can be um, so incredibly healing and, and reconnecting. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, MAPS does quite a bit of work with their whole Zendo project um, mm-hmm. and, and having a presence at festivals and at sort of sorts of gatherings. Um, I'm curious if you've ever had any experience with that or have been on the sort of sitting side and, and holding space for people that are going through some of those experiences. Yeah. So, yeah, I haven't participated in Zendo, although that's something I would really, I'd love to do at some point in time. Um, My sitting experiences have generally speaking been in the clinical trials, right? So, I mean, and I've certainly, I've been in context where, I mean, there's been other folks within, you know, using psychedelics and having different experiences, but um, I haven't been called on to be a sitter in those, in those ways. And I think, um, it's kind of interesting because I think it's, it speaks to, I think the intentional communities in which I, I try to place myself that I'm also, I think people are aware that because I, um, cause I do this for the trials that, you know, uh, to not necessarily push that envelope with me or to, to, um, use that, that position. But, um, but yeah, I, I, the sitting aspect I think is incredibly powerful and incredibly useful in the experiences of folks. The the idea of being seen and witnessed by someone else in the experience that they're there without judgment and to assist you through, and especially if it's a challenging experience, can be so so affirming. And I think it because the set setting and context in which any of these um, tools are used is so important and really, really impacts the effect that they'll have and where you'll go with them, that to, to feel safe and to feel um, supported within that, be it, you know, with a group of friends you feel comfortable with, or specifically with a sitter who's with you in that experience is so useful. I think one experience I have had and um, is being a sitter and being a breather within holotropic breathwork, which is another mm. uh, means of kind of going to a non-ordinary state of consciousness that is just involving the breath. And in that, you know, um, in that tradition, the idea is that there's facilitators. So there's people who run the session, but that every single person who's breathing has someone sitting with them. And that sitting, that sitter is there to hold space and to assist and to just be um, a person witnessing experience for you. And that is, so powerful to know that there's someone there just for you during that experience. And, you know, they're not a therapist. I mean, I happen to be a therapist and a sitter, but I don't act as a therapist. Instead, I'm the person who will fetch you your water or will get you a Kleenex or will help you with your eye mask if you need it, or will lead you to the bathroom or hold your hand if you need it. And to have that type of presence as, um, I mean, I think we could all use that 
all the time in our lives, you know, having mm-hmm. someone bear witness to our experiences, but particularly when you're on a deep internal journey, I think that that's a, an added layer of, um, and can bring up stuff for people too, especially if you're working with ideas of like, Ooh, are people there for me? Am I going to be abandoned? Are they not going to be present? And am I not going to be cared for to have that, um, that learning experience that no, no, I'm, I am being cared for. I am, this person is here with me. This is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why I love, you know, how you, how you have termed it, the mental health innovation community in terms mm-hmm. of what you guys are doing at, at Remedy. Yeah. Because the more I look into health and explore and talk to people and experience, it's uh, seemingly that the lack of true community is at the root of so many of the modern day challenges, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's depression, anxiety, just feeling disconnected and isolated, feeling a lack of belonging. Um, and so to have that in this like super uh, personal one-on-one sort of uh, level during one mm-hmm. of those experiences, I can, I can uh, only imagine how potent um, that could be and how simple it can be. Um, to, to provide that for someone. So I love that you guys are doing this work and can hopefully, um, you know, set a, a new standard essentially for how we deal with these things. That's mm-hmm. just far more humane and far more honoring of, you know, the, the unique being who is in search of these, uh, these types of therapies. Um, there was something else that you had said that I'm trying to now call up. Oh, um, it was along the lines of um, how you guys are selecting uh, people for these trials. Mm-hmm. And um, like, are these people who are, they've already gone through all of the standard treatments of different, you know, potentially pharmaceuticals, therapies, um, and have sort of failed those things? Or like, how, how are you guys finding who is a good fit for these trials uh, as you move forward? Um, yeah, so generally, sorry, yeah. No, so I was just going to say, and then what have been sort of the, uh, the success rates um, with this type of therapy as opposed to, you know, the status quo uh, therapies? Right. So the... Selection for the studies that we are running, so we being myself and Candace and Annie and Michael, um, they're a little bit different than the studies where um, the other studies they're running with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So for example, right now, there's something called a phase three study that's running at 14 different sites across North America, and they just started. And so the idea with that, that's actually the basically the pharmaceutical trial to try to push MDMA through as a legal medicine um, to be used for the treatment of PTSD. And so the the studies that happened before that were generally speaking with treatment resistant depression or depression, PTSD. I mean, oftentimes people have depression too, but treatment resistant PTSD. And what that meant is that they tried multiple different treatments and they hadn't worked. And so, uh, however, these newer studies, we don't have that caveat anymore. They don't need to have tried a whole host of different things. But generally speaking, what happens is people already have already tried several different things because the idea of undergoing um, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy 
is a big undertaking and you need to be quite sure that you know this is what you want to do and it requires a lot of time and effort and uh, it also requires that folks go off of all of their medications and so that's a big commitment for someone who might you know have been on medications for quite a long time so we see that folks generally speaking have already gone through a fair number of treatments before um, they're looking for uh, a trial like this so yeah, it tends to be that, so our inclusion for this last study, we did the couple study, was that one person in the couple needed to have PTSD and the other person was not to have PTSD. They could have lots of other um, mental health conditions that were going on. The ones that we, you know, there's a few that we wouldn't um, encourage for people to have. So for example, if someone had active psychosis, they, it wouldn't be the right time for them to be doing the therapy. Um, and, you know, we had the caveat that people need to not have active substance dependence at the time. And there's other, another study that's happening actually in the UK right now where they're actually using MDMA to treat alcohol use disorder. So, I mean, it's just a different approach, but because these are scientific trials, we're just trying to, at the moment, try to keep it at least a little bit narrower so we can see the effect. So that tends to be the biggest rule out um, are if people are on medications and they can't go off of them or don't want to go off of them or um, some psychiatric rule outs. And then there are some physical rule outs as well, but they mostly have to do with um, cardiac issues or blood pressure. So we just have to make sure that it feels like it will be safe for folks to take the medicine. Um, yeah, so that tends to be the requirements and people, when they enter the studies, it can be PTSD for any reason. So it's not, you know, PTSD because of, uh, let's say war or sexual assault or childhood sexual experiences. It could be from any reason. So there's no, um, distinction there. And then what we've seen so far is, so for our, our last, our couple study, we did, the results were very strong. We've had, um, you know, the you know, five out of six couple or individuals lost their diagnosis of PTSD at the end of the treatment, which was incredible. And what those gains were, uh, generally speaking, fully maintained at six months follow-up, which is great. And what also we found really interesting too, was that everyone had improved relationship satisfaction, which was uh, a big thing as well. So improved how you're interacting with others. So that compared to, I mean, the results we see with CBCT alone are actually very good as well, but these, it does look like, I mean, it was a very small sample, so that's why we need to test everything bigger studies, but mm -hmm. from what we see, there's enough of a signal that says, hey, this might be more, it might give an extra boost from CBCT on its own that it's definitely worth pursuing and definitely worth investigating further. So we're hoping that once we finish this pilot of CPT plus MDMA, we'll go on to a larger, a much larger study of the couples one. That's my, that's my dream to have that one next. Very cool. And then I want to just uh, anchor in a point that you said there that, you know, it's a big commitment and takes a lot of time and energy, mm -hmm. um, which I think is important for everyone who's listening, who might be thinking, oh, you know, I'll take some MDMA on my own and, and heal myself. It's not a magic pill, right? It's not like a silver bullet. Um, and just to help us understand, you know, what is the preparation and the integration look like in these trials? Um, because as we know, the integration, in my experience, and in those that I, you know, talk to, the integration, whether it's, uh, you know, a meditation retreat or MDMA or ayahuasca or whatever the therapeutic experience was, if you don't have that space to integrate, 
it's hard to make lasting results. So, so what does that process look like for you guys? Absolutely. I think, yeah, it's a really important point that, you know, the taking a dose of MDMA in your living room isn't going to create the same effect as going, you know, into the study. And so the idea being that we do a lot, so we do uh, a long involved consent process. So we have um, several times where, you know, we're talking to the potential participants about what it is, what it's going to look like, what are the risks, what are the benefits. Uh, so lots of opportunity to ask questions and go through that. And then with this couple study we did, so we actually are doing a full course of therapy alongside the MDMA session. So what is usually a 15 session protocol that's spread out over you know, three months, we're condensing down into uh, just over two months or no, just under two months, like it's quite condensed and meaning we're doing a huge chunk of therapy in a condensed way over a day and a half. And then they're having a full day MDMA session with us. And then we're integrating it the next morning. And then we're doing, you know, um, therapy over the course of three weeks, like four more sessions. And then you have another intensive day of therapy and then an MDMA session and integration. And then you finish up the protocol. So it, it, I mean, it's a, at the time and the kind of intenseness of what that looks like, you have to be ready and you have to jump in. But the idea is your PTSD might be gone after, you know, six to eight weeks, which is, you know, very quick comparatively to a lot of other, um, a lot of other treatments. And so the idea is like, if people are ready and willing, it can be very effective, but that it, it takes a, a, a lot of, creation of the container to make it happen too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that's sort of a timeline is, um, you know, some might say miraculous where you can compare with years and potentially decades of consistent, uh, you know, dysfunction and, and struggling and having these triggers go off and, you know, uh, lashing out at yourself or others or whatever the symptomology might be of that person's condition. Um, to have something that, you know, in less than two months, we can take them along this journey and they're essentially, you know, a new person who doesn't have those same issues. That to me is like miraculous and something right. that, that that we really need to focus on as a society and a culture and encourage these types of things to happen for more of us, right? Because even if you don't ever have a, a diagnosis of some sort of disorder, like you said, we've all got stuff, right? By nature of being human and being alive, you've got stuff. Um, sure. um, and so on, on that note, I wonder sort of, you know, if you can project forward five, 10, 20 years, like where would you like to see all of this go uh, in terms of creating this community-based mental health holistic uh, model for, for well-being? Yeah, I, well, that's a great question. I think, um, I have lots of different visions for where I think I would like it to go, but I think a big piece of it is I, I hope to create a space a that offers choice for folks. So, you know, psychedelic and MDMA psychotherapy isn't going to be for everybody. And I think offering different options that work is very important. And so I think, but also testing those options. And I think that's a big thing that we unfortunately aren't doing in a lot of ways is we'll, 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 you know, there's all of these beautiful options that are available for folks for exploration and growth, but we don't actually know what the outcomes are of them. Like we, it tends to be testimony or uh, anecdotal reports of things working, but you know, the scientist in me says like, 
why don't we test them, right? Like, and say like, this is the types of gains you can actually be getting. And I think that will lend a lot more support for different ways of doing things. Because all these things that I think many of us who you either work in or dabble in, in, in wellness and, and holistic health know, like quote unquote, know that things are working, but we don't have data to tell us that in a lot of ways, then I think, you know, one of Remedy's offerings can be that like, let's just get some data on this. Like, let's offer it, let's test it out. Let's, and then say like, Hey, yes, it does work. And maybe it doesn't work in this particular way, but it works over here. And like, and so people are informed about what that is. And the idea that, you know, I think oftentimes we get really siloed into, well, this is evidence-based and this isn't, or this works and this doesn't. And I think lots of things can potentially work, but we just need to know how and why they do. And so my vision is to have a far more um, inclusive idea of how we look at things that work from health and wellness. And also because the things that we can stamp as working are the things that get funded by research. And that's a problem because then there's a bias in terms of what we can actually test. And so the idea is, if Remedy exists on its own, we could be testing lots of different things that don't necessarily have to be going through a grant structure. Um, we can still do it ethically. We can still do it with, you know, all kind, all of the great pieces of science that go alongside of it. But that's what I see is offering people opportunity and choice um, within their own growth and exploration and supporting those decisions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And I'll be, I'll be very uh, keen to, uh, stay in touch and be, you know, uh, more understanding of what you guys are working on because it's, it's a similar model that I'm working with as well is, is how do we bring the options that we know to be safe, right? At the very least safe uh, yeah. and at the very best, very effective, right? More so effective than, you know, invasive procedures of, of some sort um, and to empower, you know, people with those choices, right? And then to eventually, you know, big picture to have our healthcare dollars directed to that, right? Mm -hmm. So that if someone wants to come and do a session of therapies and explore some, you know, visionary medicine that that's covered and they don't have to, you know, come out of pocket to cover those costs, Um, which I think, I think we'll get there. I I do think we'll get there. As you said, as the science comes in and as the uh, legitimizing of some of these things that are often, you know, just pushed aside as, oh, that's, you know, woo-woo or, or too out there or whatever the thing may be. Um, and so it, it just excites me knowing that this type of thing is happening um, and that there's more and more of us that are sort of seeing these patterns, right, and coming up with models, um, more integrative models to address some of the challenges that, are, that people are experiencing. Yeah, I yeah, agree very much. And it's it's hopeful to me that there's other people who are like minded and wanting to push that same idea forward. And and just saying that, you know, we well, interestingly, one of the things the medicines tend to to show us is that the way in which our, our world is structured is not necessarily always the most helpful. And so, you know, if there's that's a teaching of the medicine and also a way in which we're trying to push forward how we do other things, I think that has a nice synchronicity to it. So Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Most definitely. Um, I'm curious what, um, if you had to, to pick one thing and maybe it's trauma, maybe it's, you know, that's why you're doing what you're doing. Um, 
But when you look at sort of the, the range of health and wellness challenges these days, what do you think's the most pressing uh, issue or the, the most underserved um, aspect of health that, that you'd like to draw more attention towards? It's mm, a great question. I think it's twofold. I think it's, um, you're right, I do think it's trauma. And I think trauma widely defined is important because we, as I said, we all experience it. And it's usually not well understood. Um, and it's not rocket science. I think it's just that we, you know, it, it's, it feels untouchable and it, it shouldn't be. So we need more people who or more practitioners who understand and can work with trauma in a lot of different ways. We need just a general societal understanding of that. Um, so that's number one. And then number two um, is I think we, we would all benefit from a society that has better self-reflection and communication with each other. And I think that that's a massive thing. So, you know, no matter who I see in my practice, who's coming in, we're working on self-reflection and communication, no matter what the issue is, that's coming up, mm. no matter who I interact with in the world, you know, self-reflection and communication. And when people are not open to that, it creates so much strife. It creates so much struggle. It creates so much dis, you know, I was going to say dis-ease, but you know, unease that, and maybe disease as well that goes alongside of it. And, you know, when we think about the idea of forming community, part of a big part of that is communication within community. And we are lacking um, very like real and heartfelt and emotional and vulnerable communication because it often gets stifled and shut down. And so I think, um, I think that would serve us very well. Mm -hmm. Yes. Amen to that. <laughs> I'm on the same page there. And in terms of, um, you know, if someone's been listening through this and they're interested and they're, you know, their, their curiosity is peaked, what might be three resources that uh, that you might you know offer those folks to dive deeper into some of these subjects? That could be books, teachers, documentaries, any of the above. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, a fabulous resource is the MAPS website. I think that's a great place to start. They have a huge collection of resources on there. It's maps.org. Um, so that's number one. I would say... Um, hmm. Let's see what else I would recommend. Well, the teachings of um, just in generally speaking, understanding non-ordinary states of consciousness, the teachings of Stanislav Grof are very uh, kind of form the backbone of a lot of <laughs> what people think of. And so he was the developer or is the developer of um, holotropic breathwork, which is uh, he was a former LSD uh, assisted psychotherapy researcher before that became illegal and then developed holotropic breathwork. So if people are looking for a deep dive into something, his, that's his work. That's not light reading. That would be, um, you know, really digging into something. Um, and then um, people can check out the Remedy website. That's another one. So we, you know, we don't have, we try not actually to have a lot up there and we do that on purpose, but we link to the different community events that we have happening or things that um, we think would be useful. And uh, there's also links, for example, within that to some of our uh, different publications that we've written, um, which people can then access. So, uh, and our website is remedycenter.ca. Okay. And is that, correct me if I'm wrong, center with a R-E? Yes, the Canadian, right. of course. Yeah. yeah mm -hmm. So if you're American or from some other place in the world, it's center with an R-E ending. Uh, yeah. Remedycenter.ca. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then given that the name of my show is Redefining Reality, mm. I would love to hear what that brings up inside you when you hear that term. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it brings up joy. <laughs> That's the first thing that it brings up is I think, oh, I spend a lot of time thinking about reality and how it serves us or doesn't in different ways and all kinds of different ways, be it, you know, our choices with our, you know, work, how we are, how we are with others. And that, you know, I think we can often feel stuck and structured in ways that don't feel helpful and that we are all capable of making choices that allow us to not feel stuck. And that can redefine our reality in a huge way. And it can be very scary. And I think I am, you know, encourage people all the time to be facing their fears. And that's something I have to learn myself. You know, I try to practice all the time, but that we can actually, if we do the things that scare us, we're able to shift how things are. And so redefining reality in that way uh, can be absolutely, you know, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's such a beautiful journey that we get to go on. Right. And to see how, you know, it never really ends, but that we can expand our, our awareness and our realm of comfort, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And to understand that uh, what seems impossible today, what seems overwhelming and anxiety-inducing, um, if you chunk it down and take one step, at one step, one step, one step, um, that looking back, you think, oh my goodness, how did I ever become this way? How did I overcome these things? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I love that, you know, that, that self-reflection piece, mm-hmm. right, which I've, I've found for myself and many people that I speak to, whether it be them clients or, you know, other entrepreneurs and business owners, um, when we don't take that time to slow down and reflect, it can feel just like a, a um, an unrewarding, never ending uh, trudging through, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it is that we're choosing to do. Right. And so I love that piece and, and that importance to to really tune in and and you know give ourselves credit for how far we've come, right? Even if there's a long way to go. Mm-hmm. That's it's always gonna be the case, right? And so um right. to, to bring it back to that and, and to really to anchor that in, I think is in many ways, you know, a remedy for this uh the, the modern neurosis that can often overtake us. So mm-hmm. 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 And uh, so you have the Remedy website. Mm-hmm. Is there any other places where people should go or that you'd like to direct them to if they want to keep up with your work, keep up with the center? Yeah, I think our website is the best way to do that. I mean, we're also, um, you can find our links through there onto social media, which is where, you know, we, um, we're on Instagram and Twitter. Those are our two. So we do try to keep up to date there too. So you're welcome to to join us. Um, yeah. And the links to all of those are through the website. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I, uh, I definitely look forward to seeing, um, you know, what you guys are working on and coming out to some sort of community event and just you know, understanding what's going on. Um, so I'm going to stay attuned to the website and, and the Instagram for sure. Um, and then before I sign off here, I just want to take a second to acknowledge you for the work that you're doing and for the pioneering that's happening um, and for, you know, just the, 
the teacher that you are and the healer that you are and the woman that you are and just, you know, doing this, this so, uh, in my eyes, essential work um, so that we get to, can ultimately alleviate suffering. Um, and shift into a better place, a more whole place. Uh, so I just want to say thank you for that and please keep it up. Mm, thank you so much. That's so kind. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so everyone who's been listening, uh, thank you as well for tuning in. And like I said at the beginning of this episode, all the show notes, all the links that we've mentioned will be over at the blog, brianhardy.ca forward slash remedy. And until next time, take care and keep redefining reality. And as I did in the previous episode, I'm going to play you out with a little deep connection by Rob Ricardo, because as I have come to see, and more of us are coming to see when we have that deep connection, depression and trauma and the challenges of the modern world are manageable. And uh, we can get through our days and feel good and thrive. So may you find that deep connection and may you thrive each and every day. Much love. Breath to the island easy as I drift in the deep blue sea. Head on now above the surface. Taking in that beauty What a sun is shining This is all I need I root down to the ocean bottom But I can feel that heat At the core of Pachamama Birthing all we see Creating land above With the fire underneath I've been looking for a deep connection And here that's what I found This island shares her lessons On sacred ground Let go and open up A deep connections all around